Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's so good to have you here. Uh, today's guest. Oh, so good. This is going to be such an interesting conversation because we're going to talk to a, somebody who is not a professional communicator, but is a professional writer and who also is autistic. So this is the Chelsea Delaney as our guest today, who contributed an article, which we call Deeper Dives in our book, The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit. So Chelsea actually had more involvement in the book than what I am uh, sharing right now, but we'll get into that as we get into the, (laughs) as we get into the questions. So, uh, so we're getting an outside in, but also a writer's perspective on today's episode. And Chelsea is so kind to talk about his experiences as being an autistic individual, um, walking in the world and trying to make sense of messaging and narrative and is also a writer. So just, oh, there's so much interesting goodness. And I know that's going to come from this uh, conversation. Chelsea, thanks for being with us and sharing your time and contributing the article. I know people who have read the book and been a part of the book club have brought up your article in particular with questions, wanting to learn more and having a lot to take away from it. Um, so you speak to people in a way that it's like, this is really good feedback for me as a communicator, as a writer. So thank you again for that contribution. Please introduce yourself to everybody. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Chelsea Delaney here. Um, I am an autistic, gender fluid artist and writer. Uh, let's see. What do I do? I do lots of things. I do book coaching. I do writing. I do editing. Uh, as I said, I'm a visual artist. Uh, I've currently, in the last year or so, become the creative director at Reroute Magazine, which is a new online magazine where we're showcasing or seeking to showcase the gifts and talents of neurodivergent writers and artists. Uh, yeah, so glad to be here today. Glad to be introduced by you, Kim, as the Chelsea Delaney. That, that's like... <laughs> is there any other? thank you for that of course so i am in the process of finding your deeper dive and it is after our chapter on uh tailored which Mm -hmm. is my favorite of the five pillars of the depth model in the book um one, because I get to talk about baggy sweat swims, uh, sweatsuits versus tailored, you know, shirts. And you know, <laughs> that's fun to talk about. But it's also, to me, the most critical piece that people misunderstand in organizations on how they can position themselves from a place of strength on DEI and social topics. There's so many organizations that think that they have to do all the things. And they don't externally have to do all the things. 
They can tailor it. You just have to do your thing. You don't have to do all the things. You just have to do your thing. And that's what the depth model gets us to, that introspective um, conversation, the conversation that needs to be had at every organization. But when we get to that T, Chelsea, when we get to tailor down to our specific core capabilities as an organization, that's where the sweetness comes in. Because that's where we can say, nobody can touch us on this. This is where we can inf- influence and impact. We, we don't know anything about that other thing, but we know this, and this is what we can do about it. <clears throat> so your deeper dive at the end of that chapter is the joy of being seen, which I think is really powerful as it relates to tailoring tailoring our messages. So if you don't mind, I'd love for you to read an excerpt from your article there. And then I'd love to ask you some follow-up questions. Of course, of course. I'll read the first couple paragraphs for you. I am autistic. You can't separate me from my autism. And I'm not looking for a way to do so. It's not insulting to call me autistic any more than it is to call me tall, even though I was made to believe it was for years as a teacher. We were constantly pushed towards language like on the spectrum or person with autism. It was only much later after my own diagnosis that I had to start repairing the harm caused by that wording, the deep wound of being made invisible to myself. So you better believe I was excited when I saw an ad this April, more widely known as Autism Awareness Month, that looked me directly in the eye, which I usually hate, but didn't mind because it was an ad. The company makes tactile processing fidgets for a variety of people who are seeking relief from high anxiety. Through this ad, they were giving away free samples of this fidget with each purchase in April. This in and of itself shows a basic level of doing their homework on their audience. They know they make a product that a group might use, so they give it away for that awareness month. I was intrigued. Why? Why were you intrigued? What was it about that messaging? I think it was the feeling of just the directness. Um, I go on in that article to say that they use the term autistic person and our autistic friends or our autistic family multiple times inside the ad copy of that article. Um, And it just, it was refreshingly direct. And that felt really nice. There was something about that that, you know, makes you want to lean in rather than lean out. Um, You know, as I mentioned here, you know, my diagnosis was only a couple of years ago. And so I'm still in the beginning stages of forming my autistic and my neurodivergent communities. Um, But a lot of us talk about April being a very traumatizing month, that Mm -hmm. autism awareness month, which other people are like, yay, let's celebrate you. And, you know, the intent is good, um, ends up coming across as very just anxiety producing for us. Um, and so that article, or not article, that ad was the opposite of that. What makes it anxiety producing for you? Um, for me personally, I didn't know there, 
again, kind of in the last couple of years, I've been feeling it, my way into all of it. But there's the feeling that, oh, now I'm going to be called upon to speak for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of that, that spotlight on that part of your identity is yeah which wanted. yeah i'm okay like i have a lot of privilege as somebody who works for myself um and as somebody who is situated you know white skin college educated all those things like i have a lot of privilege where i do talk about my autism a lot like i've talked about it nonstop almost for the ne- for the last couple of years uh, but there's a difference between me expressing it and exploring it and like having conversations versus now it's an official month. Like it's a task that you have to do for other people. Um, and you mm-hmm. somehow have to either be autistic enough or, you know, you have to find like which of the subgroups you can most closely lay yourself with while you're talking and explaining things yeah it's it's a very spotlighty thing which is um i don't know i don't think is the most authentic way to get to know anybody so yeah there's there's some anxiety around that yeah i can i can feel that now april has been traditionally or historically called awareness month and now it's acceptance month Can you talk us through that change? Yeah. So the reasoning goes like, shouldn't we be aware enough already? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, like, I don't know how much more there is to say about that. So, you know, the acceptance month is great. Um, You know, but I have to say, I follow a variety of different accounts online or different organizations that are, actually led by neurodivergent people. They're advocacy groups that are led and run by uh, people who are neurodivergent. One of them I love is like so dear to my heart is Neuroclastic. And they had a poll or a kind of a thread recently where they were talking about what would you like it called besides Autism Awareness Month? And you just scroll down through these comments and there's all kinds of wonderful suggestions Uh, and some people were fine with awareness month some people are fine with you know acceptance month Uh, but yeah it's that's a great group to follow if you are curious about you know the lived and authentic experience of you know the neurodivergent people around you yeah and some real funny ones because we all have slightly weird senses of humor (laughs) (laughs) which i appreciate you're fun at parties uh, I am <laughs> yes, as long as they're not too loud or too bright or right, then we got the sensory. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, as you know, you've met my kids, and my son is has been diagnosed as autistic since he mm-hmm. was two, three, maybe. And he has a more toddler level of of ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. But man, is he a storyteller? Is he like a stand-up comedian? Is he a happy kid? Mm -hmm. Um, And all the things. And so I always say, like, if you met one autistic person, you've met one. 
autistic person and some of the language around when he was first diagnosed and we started getting into learning more about autism and what it means, you kind of get into these camps um, where it's like cure him, right? Give him the best life possible. Uh, but there's also this like appreciation camp of mm -hmm. like, how beautiful he gets to experience the world in his own unique way. One that I will never truly understand. It's hard for him to communicate with words, uh, you know, verbally with us, mm -hmm. but I know that he's experiencing it and he's happy in it, you know? And one of the things that uh, is beautiful for me as a mom of a teenage boy with autism is that he doesn't get caught up in all the social crap. He loves that his voice um, so he thinks his, his voice changing is hilarious. He's not embarrassed <laughs> by it. And also he can't lie. Yeah. So here's, here's, here's a, here's an example that may be a little crude, but I think it's funny. Um, so if someone in the car toots and if it's him and I say, Jordan, did you toot? And he'll say, yeah, <laughs> but if he didn't, but I always go, I always go to him first because I know he's going to tell the truth. Did you toot? And he'll go, no, and he'll point to the person who did. <laughs> so, so, so we have a variety of ways of communicating, but it's something I, I, I genuinely appreciate about him. And when we are uh, first getting introduced to the world of what is autism and, and how does it relate to other, you know, medical interventions and, and all of the things, um, I it didn't feel right as far as the whole idea that this is years ago. He is a teenager. Uh, so I know well, there's um, still a lot of that pathologizing that's out there. So, yeah, that's what I was going to lead to is just like this, this understanding of this, this perspective of what autism is and mm -hmm. understanding that <clears throat> as a mother who doesn't have autism, but has, is raising a son who does my outside perspective is, this kind of beauty of him being autistic and the, and how he gets to see the world, even though I'd love to know how he sees the world and colors and sounds and what is it, what it does he experience. I so wish I could participate in that, but that's not for me to experience. That's for him to experience. And I get to get the benefit of his experience by him being in my life. That's a very different positioning than some of us in work situations when we're working with somebody yeah. who may or may not have come out, if you will, uh, of what their, you know, their identities are, uh, their yeah. neurodivergence, et cetera. So, you know, um, tell us more about your experience uh, from, you know, being someone who's autistic from the inside out. Mm. Well, I mean, you're, you're, talking about your early experience, which kind of brings me to, you know, the beginning of my, you know, diagnosed journey kind of up to that point. Um, you know, a lot of female identifying people and especially people of color are underdiagnosed that like criminal proportions. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of us that don't get that understanding and that clarity till much, much later. Um, you know, because autism was originally centered around boys, white, mm -hmm. upper middle class boys. Mm -hmm. um, so that presentation is the one that and white boys. Work. 
and white, well. definitely yeah. white boys. Um, and so that presentation is what people are familiar with. So I always kind of felt like the odd one out. And I just, my philosophy in life was, I guess I just got to try harder. I'm either a little bit crazy, a little bit lazy. Either way, I have to just try harder. That was kind of my default way to attack everything, um, which, as you can imagine, is very exhausting over the yeah. course of 30-something years. So I hit my mid-30s, and all of a sudden, it was an energetic wall. It was like, and they talk about autistic burnout, and it was like, boom, I was done. I was waking up crying before work at the alarm with no reason. Um, I used to be able as an English teacher to sit down to eight hours of essays on a Saturday. Oh, yeah. So after eight hours of essays, uh, you know, I used to be able to do it. Now I could maybe do 30 minutes. Um, and it was just this full dead stop. And even then, my default was, well, I just better try harder. And so I was dating somebody and they, um, you know, we broke up and I went searching in that very now what I know is a very autistic, like deep dive rabbit hole kind of way on what was wrong with him. And I started reading up. So I'm like, I bet he's autistic. And then I went through the books and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's him. That's him. That's him. And then I looked on the other page and I'm like, that's me. That's me. That's me. And I went. Oh crap. <laughs> and it clicked. And like in the course of like reading one book, I went, Oh, and I, and I couldn't actually deal with it at that point. So mm. I had this understanding and it's like, it was this big burst of lightning that I then put off to the side <laughs> mm. And I spent another seven or eight years just kind of every once in a while looking at it side-eye and going mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. okay, you're over there still. You're over there still. Like, and kind of feeling my way into it because I knew it was right. I knew that's what it was pretty much the first book I read. And then I just finally got to a point where one day I went, you know, I'm ready to do the whole diagnosis thing. And that in and of itself is a huge privilege because medical diagnosis um, is not available to everybody, you know, just so people have an understanding. Even with insurance, you can pay upwards of three, four, five thousand dollars to go through the diagnosis process. And it was two thousand for us when he was and that was, you know, over yeah. a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's even with insurance it's not accessible to everybody. So most autistic people and most neurodivergent community were like, look, if you're self-diagnosed, we're good with you. Nobody's self-diagnosing themselves. Nobody's trying to be autistic just for attention or for fun. Um, but I had the ability to go through the actual medical diagnosis process. And, you know, the day I left and with my diagnosis, I was like, that relief and that joy were there. And it took a little while though, to come into the more vulnerable parts of it, to realize that I had spent the first 30 plus years of my life 
with uncertainty as my basic starting point. Mm. Uncertain of like, am I really processing reality the way everybody else is? Like, am I doing something wrong? So when you're uncertain for 30 plus years, like you have to go into the vulnerability of that, the grief of the loss. Like, I'm not even sure I've gotten to the anger part of that yet. Um, but yeah, so that's, there is relief initially. And then there's kind of the whole dark side of the feelings. But again, I felt it was really important from day one to be very vocal about it. A, because I have the opportunity to do so. And B, the more parts of myself that I recognize and affirm and kind of claim, the more I feel in myself. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I actually got into the world until probably the beginning of my thirties. Like I lived almost exclusively in my mind. Um, Yeah. And so that feeling of like starting to actually be somebody who takes up space. Like I knew I had a body. (laughs) I knew it had needs I had to do things for it and to it. But I was so dissociated in which I've come to learn now is just that it's trauma that trauma Mm -hmm. dissociation. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I had to learn to come back and bring everything back together that had been ignored or had been, you know, scattered. So yeah, it it became and still is very important for me to be very vocal about that. Because a lot of people still labor under the, the misapprehension or the, I don't know if it's willful or if it's just not knowing. Um, that everyone grows out of autism, you know, and, and we know like you have fully functional adults or functional enough to put on the face that don't grow out of autism. Um, so it's, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, a lot of folks are good at putting on a face, but they are still privately really struggling with certain areas of life. Thank you for sharing your story. Of course. Um, that's Absolutely. huge. And in, in certain um, parts of your story, I'm almost giggling to myself because it's so similar to my coming out as a gay woman. <laughs> you know? right? there, there's a, there is a lot of resonance between uh, oh, my yeah. coming out and your coming in. <laughs> you know? Yes. Oh, oh, I like that so much. Coming. Yes, exactly what it was. Oh, that's so good. Wow, you with the words. <laughs> well, let's talk about the words. So, uh-huh. you know, between your story, your experience, and what you share in the article in the book, you know, it really, I would love to learn more uh, from your experience how we as communicators can use language to create mm-hmm. that connection that is that that is inclusive of your identity as well as your experience. How do we approach language? What is the most respectful way for us to talk about the community if we're not a part of the community? Sure. Um, uh, you know, if, you know, provide some guidance there if you don't mind. 
Sure, of course. Um, again, and all of you as professionals know this, but we always ask first. But from the majority of, you know, people that I talk to and interact with that are autistic and myself personally, um, I prefer autistic person or Chelsea, he is autistic, um, rather than person with autism or on the spectrum. And I have to say, like, when I first got my diagnosis, I did another like year's worth of intense reading. Cause I was like, does it really actually matter? Like, I don't know. Like I was hearing this debate, like in the internet and or swirling around me in different groups and different threads. And I went, all right, I'm going to read some stuff. I read a fantastic book by Dr. Nick Walker called Neuroqueer Heresies. And she talks about, the actual linguistics behind it. And she's like, okay, first of all, think about this. You would never say of any other thing the way you construct the sentence around autism. I wouldn't say, oh, well, she's a person with homosexuality. Or this person is living on the blackness spectrum. You know, like those constructions that we make for autism would automatically, someone would look at you with the uh-uh face if you use them for other identities. You know, so that's the first thing. The second thing is when you say person with autism, it makes it sound like they could also be without it. Mm, great point. You know, and I can't, that's my neurotype. It's my brain, mm -hmm. you know? I'm not dating autism. It's not like I'm with them now and then this, we're going to break up next week. Like <laughs> You can dump it at will. Right. I mean, you can make, but you do have to make some, you know, accommodations to fit in or try to connect. You know, there's a lot of, I could imagine that there's a lot of coding that you have to go through and sort through. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to pause there for a second oh, because sorry, I think pausing. it's really important. I think it's important for people to hear and understand that. And now those of us who are not in the community, we want to say the right thing. We don't want to say mm -hmm. anything disrespectful, right? And we come from this lineage of language that, um, you know, doesn't feel right to say, even though it, it is part of one's identity. So like the word I, I see constantly and I hear it from friends in the, in the disability community, they say, I, I am disabled. I, that is part of my, my diversity. That is part of my identity. I am disabled. Disabled is not a bad word kind of thing. Whereas somebody like me, or I'll just speak for myself, me outside of that community, it feels squishy for me to say that, right? Yeah. But then you get to autism and I think of my son and in order to put together a trust, it, for him, it, it's, a, it's called the government, you know, legal systems call it a special needs trust. Mm -hmm. I would not call him special needs. He's just oh. him, you know, but so he, there's not a, there's not a, there's a way language creates an othering, mm -hmm. which also can introduce power dynamics of value mm -hmm. on identities, right? Yeah. Um, about it. The needs that he has are the needs that everyone has. The needs that I have are the needs that everyone has. They're not special. You know, I have a need for friends and sustenance and place to live and education, all these employment. things. Employment. Yeah. Autistic people are underemployed to, to also very huge proportions. Um, 
Yeah, so I've heard a lot of people say they have higher support needs, which I like better. But yeah, special needs creates a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And I think we also as communicators need to help, especially with our HR partners, you know, work through the word accommodations, you know, because there can be a stigma attached Mm -hmm. to accommodations. In an earlier uh, podcast episode where I talked to Michael Hinkson, who uh, he's blind, and he talks about a company will spend money on lights for those who are sighted, you know, and so why wouldn't I get a screen reader so I can do my job, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, it's all the same thing, but it's how we have been introduced through language that leads to certain behavior that is leading to judgments or we're, a co- we're associating costs to it, or yeah. it's hard for us to work with this autistic person because they need, le- you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And statistically, you probably have the statistics, the loyalty of people who are autistic and people, uh, you know, new- neurodivergent people, the loyalty, they oh, don't jump around. Well. You know, it's like, <laughs> I want to work. And I want to do well. End of story. Yeah, you know, you do well, I'll give you a kidney. Like it's, yeah, yeah. That's that's big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share, so it can be everywhere all at once. Announcing the DEI Communications Blueprint. It is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients. So by taking the video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain more confidence in DEI communications, and shift DEI messaging and narratives to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we're throwing in bonuses, webinar replays, so you get fresh, ongoing content. Go to DEICommunicationsBlueprint.com. That is DEICommunicationsBlueprint.com to get started not a problem when somebody is treated well who's neurodivergent they are they're pretty much there with you for the long haul and and it starts with the language that we use mm-hmm. to make sure oh, that we're as respectful and making that connection and building trust yeah to, to demonstrate that we are aware now we may think that no one on our team even the, our media team or our our, our contingency teams uh, in the workplace that nobody is autistic but we need to assume that that someone is just yeah. like we need to assume yeah, somebody's gay. Yeah, you've got some undiagnosed folks somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and it takes it takes people to be a little brave sometimes with language that, like you said, makes us feel squishy. I mean, Nick Walker tells a great story in her book about how she teaches a class on, you know, autism and for service providers, though. And she starts every single class, she says, with having every single one of these service providers, parents, guardians, nurses, teachers, all these different people, look at her straight in the eye and say, you are autistic. And she says every year without fail, it is the hardest day of the entire class. 
She's like, people want to argue with me about it. They want to ask if they can say it a little bit differently. They cry when they say it. One person, she said, left and had to throw up. Like people are that, like we say, like they're a little uncomfortable, but we have to realize the depth to which people are uncomfortable. Like some of these stigmas are buried deep and mm -hmm. all we're seeing is the little tiny, you know, sprout of the stigma above the ground. But we got to realize like that thing has an enormous root system. So it really takes somebody or multiple somebodies with some bravery to be like, no, the person has said to me, this is the term that they prefer and that makes them feel seen. So you can use that and we're going to use that. And we're going to, you know, make at least that at a base level, the expectation. Because I mean, there's a lot of other ways to use language as well to really accommodate neurodivergent people. But that's kind of like, that's a starting point, I think. Whenever I work on a client's customized inclusive communications guide, inevitably language around kind of the, the broader community of, of, you know, disabilities always comes up and making, you know, technology, you know, accessible, watching, you know, sound levels, light, not having strobes at our all company meetings, you know, that kind of stuff, <laughs> which my son has epilepsy as so, you know, no strobes for the all company meetings, please. That would be lovely. Um, but, you know, so it's the idea of when I think of the, it was gaining more, the disabilities movement was gaining more visibility and being more vocal mm -hmm. and self-determining. Because uh, we're, uh, you know, the community, as I understand it, historically was coming from this dehumanization that was being experienced. And so people first language was helpful back in the sixties when they used the motto of nothing about us without us, which yeah. I love that term, mm -hmm. nothing about us without us. Um, and that whole idea was like, you need, you know, apparently we need to remind people that we're people first, you know, so it was people first language, but that has shifted into yeah. more identity first, but there may be some people to your point, that are comfortable with the identity first. And yeah, it really absolutely. comes down to the first thing you said, which is it's okay to ask. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, because that shows, I mean, that shows you are aware enough and interested enough to, I don't know, come to somebody on their terms. Um, a lot of neurodivergent people, autistic people especially, are used to having to, I mean, you, the reason I love the term you use about me coming in is <laughs> because a lot of autistic people spend their whole life going out to meet other people. Like you have mm -hmm. to literally be outside of yourself all the time because you're like, nobody's coming up in this and is going to try and figure all of this out. Nobody's going to meet me where I'm at. So yeah, that asking about terms, um, you know, I've come to understand and really to feel personally how much that does mean to people. Um, you know, the other things with language for us, though, as far as autistic people is concerned, is we like a nice, specific, precise use of language. There's so much language at work that is very, very vague. Stuff like, oh, when do you need this project by? Oh, Monday or Tuesday, you know, whatever works for you. 
that is 48 hours of high intensity anxiety for me. I'm like, well, Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to fucking get it done for you on Sunday night. (laughs) If you tell me Monday or Tuesday, because that's where my anxiety is, you know, stuff like, oh, yeah, we're going to roll into the meeting around 730 and we'll try and get started by 745. You could see every autistic brain in the audience exploding. Like, so, I mean, I know it's not always possible, but that's another thing that's really helpful when it is possible is to make sure that language is specific and is precise because um, language has been used against autistic people for a long time simply for the fact that we don't always get the nuance or we interpret something literally. Um, so, yeah, if you can do that. And if not, I will tell you, I don't know how many autistic circles or neurodivergent kind of gatherings I've been in where we all talk about the one person we have at work who is our neurotypical translator. Like We all go and we're like, what does this email mean? It's like we are all homing pigeons and we find the person who we're like, all right, this person seems non-judgmental. This person mm-hmm. seems like if I asked them, like, they would tell me, like, what the heck this even means. Mm-hmm. But imagine if yeah. you just had a neurotypical translator that was introduced as part of somebody's hiring process. Like, if I was coming on to a company or a group and I heard that, even if I never used them, I would go oh, they like me here. Like, they're at least trying to get me, like, a little bit. You know, because it's already a practice and community that's happening. I love that idea. A neuro, say it again, neurotranslator, body assigned during onboarding and Mm -hmm. just understanding that that is, and I choose me. I want to be the neuro. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love it. Okay. We have our work at the same place. I have a problem explaining it. And, and part of my work, obviously, is to help communicators be more concise, clear. Yeah. To your point, what you just described on like specificity, that's just, just accountability. That's for us yeah. to get tighter and more clear on our communication as a best practice. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. You know, that, that helps with our accountability for sure. And so I appreciate that you said that, that part of inclusive communications is plain language and it it should be clear and we should be setting more clear, um, you know, deadlines and, and, and expectations and stuff. That's just, that's just a kind of a practice that gets us more accountable as a team. And uh, that's just, that's just really good advice all around. So thank you for that. I want to tap into your writer, writer side of your skills. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. So as a writer, having, you know, having this experience prior to diagnosis, since diagnosis, has it changed how you write in in how you perceive language and understanding other communities of identities that you don't um, don't have as part of your own identities? So you said that you're writing for a magazine, you're probably meeting a variety of people with intersectional identities even. Um, So I'd love to hear like your experience from as a writer, how it's influenced your writing. Yeah. Um, So before my diagnosis, I was really just looking at language as 
you know, an English teacher, which kind of was, there is one standard correct English and everything else is, you know, you can chat, you can you be informal, you can write, but like good writing is standard English. Um, and that is, I mean, the, we don't even have time to discuss how ludicrous that is because there is really <laughs> no such thing as standard English. Like there's no standard English police if you get the rules wrong. Like there's no body governing standard English, quote unquote. Uh, but after my diagnosis, I really started to slow down and look at words and think, all right, is this making the writing better, clearer, or is this making the writing worse? Because there are a lot of things that are not standard English that make writing mm. better. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And especially now working at Reroute and working with neurodivergent writers, like I'm working with a dys dyslexic writer right now, and she is phenomenal. And she gets so much shit online for when she posts and things aren't all spelled correctly. And mm -hmm. she's like, you know what I tell them is sometimes I go back and fix the spelling, but sometimes I don't just for the fact that, or to demonstrate that that's not the point. Like the idea is like, is there and that's the point. And some of the things she kind of, and so I've really started to, I guess, hold myself a lot more accountable for what I edit out of a piece. Mm. Um, you know, when working with, I've just finished a piece for an upcoming issue with a neurodivergent writer um, who has all kinds of intersectional identities. Uh, he's an Italian artist and he was talking to me about his erotic work and how it stems from his experience in the BDSM community where he is a dominant. And so I have all this in my notes and I'm going to write, I'm going to write. And then I feel myself deleting and I take out that last part about where he is a dominant. And I stopped and I went, so why did we do that? Why did I just decide in this draft of the article that I couldn't include that? Is it to make the writing better, clearer? Or is it to make me or some perceived idea of an audience more comfortable? And I thought, you know, I think this one is my comfort level. I have some personal discomfort here because I don't know this community and I'm feeling protective and not wanting this artist to get judged potentially. And I thought, you know, but he shared all this information with you knowing it would, you know, it was on record. And I thought, you know, I need to put that back in. Like I need to trust that somebody's telling the story that they want to tell. And I think that's been the biggest difference uh, in how I look at language now. I love that. And help because a lot of us communicators do employee storytelling and many of us feel the pressure or get into a, a habit of taking out Maybe uh, if somebody doesn't have English as their first language and we're writing in English, 
that we correct it grammatically. We might feel a pressure to be more succinct in their ideas or if things were really raw and vulnerable that was shared with us. And then the interview process, if somebody actually went there, you know, to your point in the same situation, we will kind of, you know, protect them and cut that out or protect the company and cut that out. And then we end up with this really sanitized version of storytelling. But we always keep in the quote where where we want them to say, I feel like I belong here. Um, I really, really don't like that quote. <laughs> it says it says a whole lot of nothing. But anyway, so challenging ourselves as storytellers to leave in the raw, the vulnerable, the yeah. good, bad and the ugly, you know, and and allowing that person's voice mm-hmm. and how they speak, how they've been able to to master the English language at their level of capacity. I mean, good on them because we're not learning their language if we're, you know, uh, English as a first language. Most of us are not bilingual, trilingual, whereas the rest of the world seems to um, be asked to be uh, in order to communicate. And so there's whenever, you know, whenever I contract and and work with uh, communicators on their employee storytelling, this is a conversation that I have because there has to be this level of authenticity without the corporate sanitization that can end up happening. So what is your advice to writers who do storytelling, especially around autism acceptance month, for example? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it it is advice that looks more at the person who's doing the writing personally. Because I think when we get into a habit as writers or as communicators of just focusing on the product, that's where that narrowing and that sanitization comes in. Like Mm, there is a whole process and that's where the life force and the, you know, the wow enters our stories. And so what I tell all of my writers is if you want to tell stories that move people, you have to be moved. You have to, wherever you find it, whatever your experience is of something that Just cut you the, have to slow down a little bit because sometimes that's why we're not being moved by things is we're, you know, mm-hmm. clicking along to get to the product. But we have to let ourselves be really just, whoa, and then sit with that whoa for a second. And that's something that's difficult. That comes only really with practice. I mean, you know, when I coach books and people are like, I didn't know a book coach was a thing. Are you sure you didn't make that up? And I'm like, no, I promise I didn't. Because that's what I do with people is say, uh-uh-uh, you're about to miss a moment here. Let's slow down and let's just feel this. Like, let's be in the process as much as we are in the final product. And at least for me, when I see writers really start to put effort towards that, being in the process, um, storytelling changes. Because we all have a voice and a story that we want to tell and that needs to be told, I would argue. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very complicated 
balancing both the process and the product. Because, yeah, you do need the product. You got to put it in your newsletter or your book or your, you know, you got to meet your deadlines. You are getting paid a salary to be a communicator, right? So, but how do we balance both of those things? How do we bring at least a little more attention to the process? I think that's our soundbite when we release this uh, podcast episode. I think that was just, that was a really, really strong point because I don't, I, I don't think we have deconstructed it. Um, I come at it from a documentary perspective where I, you know, tell people as, uh, you know, when we're working on employee stories, yes, we can come with our questions. But as you just experienced having this conversation with me, yeah, I sent you questions, but I went with the conversation to see where the conversation is going because I want to step back and allow the story that wants to be told to be told, yep. not the story I want to be told, but the story that wants to be told. Yep. So, you know, so <laughs> thanks for flowing with me. <laughs> and yeah, so kind of the, the, the fun part I get to share is that Chelsea helped me write my sections and my chapters of The Conscious Communicator. So fun fact, Chelsea helped me write my chapters in The Conscious Communicator. So I am forever grateful to Chelsea's uh, style and skills. Uh, I didn't have to start with a blank page. Well, actually, I went to Chelsea after I, I was staring for about a month at a blank blank page. <laughs> This was before ChatGPT or anything that could get me started, but it never would have been as good as working with you, Chelsea. So you made my chapters so much more strong and you, you let my voice still be heard in there. There was no sanitization. And that's one of the, the biggest pieces of feedback that uh, I get on the book is your personalities, both Janet and mine, really come through. And I have you to thank for helping me because uh, as Jan LeVan Zant says, there are speakers who write and there are writers who speak. Janet is a writer who speaks. I am a speaker who writes. <laughs> so I am a speaker and a teacher first. And you coming from education and as a writer and as a wonderfully gifted um, painter and artist, mm -hmm. we have some of your art here in our home here. Um, you know, it's been a real honor and you up-leveled you know, my, my voice and uh, my writing skills just in working with you. So I just want to personally thank you for that, for challenging me and making me a better writer and a better storyteller. Um, and thank you for doing a lot of the heavy lifting in order for it to get there. <laughs> so when he comes back, so all of these, there we go. Okay. So my last question for you, Chelsea, is a question that I ask everybody uh, uh, as guests of this, uh, of this podcast is what does it look like, sound like, feel like to communicate like you give a damn? Mm -hmm. I'd say slow down, slow down, slow down your conversations. Ask more questions than you make statements. Ask so many questions. Yeah. Ask questions, slow down. I think those would be the two big ones. And let your let your actions align with what you say then after that, as you come from your words into your actions. Thank you. And in hearing you share so much of your story and the 
article you contributed to the book. One other thing I would add to what you said is put the burden of work on us as writers and communicators to make that connection and speak in an inclusive way where people can be seen. That mm-hmm. I'll remind everyone the name of your article was The Joy of Being Seen. And so we can do that in our language. We can help people be seen, heard, and valued by using language that connects connects with our audience so they don't have to wear the burden and do the decoding and having all of the work on their side to try to have to go and find a neural translator. <laughs> so we take on more of that burden of the work in learning more inclusive language that connects with people. Because ultimately that's what we're trying to do with communications, Chelsea, is connect. So how can people find you and stay up to date with what you're working on? Yes. So my Instagram is all lowercase. It's new stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S, new stories, calling art. Um, And I talk there about, you know, a lot of my autism journey as well as showing works in progress as I paint. Um, And then my website where you can see all the things that I do. I like to have my fingers in a lot of pies uh, is newstoriescalling.com. And if you are a communicator who would benefit with working with a book book coach or uh, having somebody help you strengthen your writing, especially towards the autistic community, well, then you know who to talk to. Chelsea, thank you for your time and your vulnerability. I can't say that word. Your vulnerability and sharing. Uh, I'm never going to forget what you talked about between process and product. Thank you for that ad. Yep. You're so welcome. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.